Good morning, everyone, and thank you once again for being here at Fresh Vision Church. We hope that um, you are blessed. If there's anything we can do here while you're while you're here, uh, let us know. We're here to serve you, and again, I think we're here to to also serve one another. So, um, if there's a way that you can serve someone here today, then definitely do it. Um, for those of you watching online and listening, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for checking us out um, on Facebook Live and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to leave them in the section that's provided for that, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Now, also, if you want more information or if you want um, to know more about Fresh Vision Church here in Northeast El Paso, El Paso, Texas, you can go to our website at fvcelp.org. That's fvcelp.org. And um, there you'll find all the information, well, pretty much all the information you need to know about the church, about me, um, about what we're doing. Um, so I want you to go check that out. And if the Lord has put it in your heart to give, there's also a PayPal button there as well. Um, and or you can do it the traditional way. You can, if you want to get, a, send us a letter, a postcard, whatever it may be. Our address is there as well. So this morning, we've arrived at a heartbreaking, but absolutely necessary point in this entire gospel: the death and burial. Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras once said, If there be light, then there is darkness. If cold, heat. If height, depth. If solid, fluid. If hard, soft. If rough, smooth. If calm, tempest. If prosperity, adversity. If life, death. Uh, I mention this because before we can see and understand the light of the resurrection, we have to first deal with the darkness of our Savior's death and burial. Yet what we're going to see here is that as dark as that day was, and as dark as that tomb was, there was victory. So uh, I hope that as we go through these two passages, you will see for yourselves that even in the darkest times, there's victory. And once again, these two passages will help us, will help prepare us for another vital topic for next week, the resurrection. So during our time together, while we're here, I want you to keep in the back of your mind these words from Matthew Henry. Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healings. His agonies thy repose. Thy repose. His, conflict, his conflicts thy conquests. His groans thy songs. His pains thy knees. His shame thy glory. His death thy life. His sufferings, thy salvation. 
So let's ask the Lord to meet us this morning as we open up his word. Lord, uh, we are thankful for, for being here uh, for that time of worship, that beautiful time of worship. And um, we pray that, uh, again, it was just a beautiful smelling aroma to you, Lord. Um, so now as we open up your word and continue this time of worship, speak to us loudly, speak to us clearly, Lord. Especially here about this topic, about your death and burial. Lord, I pray that you use me as your instrument to speak powerfully and speak truthfully, Lord. That I may not hold back anything that needs to be said. That you remove me from the equation and, and just use me or fill me, guide me to speak what you need to tell everybody that's here, everybody that's watching and listening. Lord, we pray for those that are hurting, going through a difficult time right now, Lord. Comfort them, be with them. And again, may this message, may you speak loudly to them through these messages, clearly. Fill this room with your spirit, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to be picking up in verse 44. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. And the word of God says this. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun sun's light had failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, place went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. If you were with us last week, we ended with the image of a crucified Jesus issuing a promise to one of the criminals next to him that on that day he would be with him in paradise. Well, here now, in this first passage that we just read, Luke picks up from there and tells us about four things that occurred at that time. Now, first, there's two symbolic events that took place while Jesus was on the cross. It says that about noon, 12 p.m., darkness came over the whole land until 3. Again, that's 3 p.m. So for three full hours, the light of the world was gone. 
This verifies the words Jesus said in chapter 22, verse 53, where he told the Jewish leaders who went to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest them that, that, that this was when the power of darkness reigns. See, that was, this here, this darkness was a sign to the nation of Israel. They had rejected the light, and now they would be judicially blinded by God. Now, some have said that the darkness didn't just cover the cross or uh, Jerusalem, but that it encompassed the whole earth. It was as though nature was sympathizing with the Creator as He suffered and died. Now, back in the Old Testament, when Israel was in Egypt, there was three days of darkness that preceded the first Passover. We hear as though we see that when Jesus was on the cross, three hours of darkness preceded the death of God's Lamb for the sins of the world. Now, the other symbolic event was that this, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. Have you ever done a deep study on, on the temple? There's a lot of fascinating things that you can learn from that. But this curtain is what separated the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. And what it was, was a divide, almost like a dividing wall that divided people from the place where God had his presence. There, only the Jewish high priests were allowed in and only with a blood sacrifice. Now, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, signifying that God tore it from heaven instead of man tearing it from earth. This meant that no priest and no religious system will ever have a monopoly on who had access to God or who had control over the system of atonement. No longer would the scribes and students of the law dictate what they believed, what was and wasn't acceptable to God. Now today, this also applies to any man, woman, religion or cult that say that in order to come to God, in order to have a relationship with God, in order to, be, to get close to God, you must be part of their church or you have to do what they say. See, in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, Paul warns us to stay away from them. Why? Because such people do not deserve, do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. See, all they're really doing is putting a chain around your neck. 
that will keep you from reaching God's throne of grace. See, the fact is this. Because of Jesus' death, God has now given people freer access to that throne of grace. When God tore the curtain, he was now saying that through Jesus, people can now go straight to God with prayers for forgiveness and atonement. The New Living Translation translates Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22 this way. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and living, a new and life-giving way through the curtain of the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty conscience have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Thus, as born-again believers, we now have a proper relationship with God that allows us to approach the throne of grace with boldness. You guys get that? We don't need a religious system. We don't need priests to get us into that throne room. You just fall on your knees and he will receive you. And do it when you're waking up, when you're going to bed throughout the day in your car. You can ask for forgiveness at any time, at any moment, and you don't have to offer a blood sacrifice or you don't have to do all kinds of works. You don't have to sit inside of a booth and confess that confess your sins to anybody. You can come to him directly and confess your sins. And he will forgive you all because of what Jesus did on the cross. And you can do this in the best of times and in the worst of times. He will receive you he will hear you, and he will love you. Again, why? Because you believed in his son. You trusted in his son. You surrendered yourself to him. You've been born again, and God's spirit now lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, just as the thief pleaded directly to Jesus, you likewise can now go directly to God. No religious system or man should hinder or separate you from contact with the Heavenly Father. A.W. Tozer wrote, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. Now, the second thing Luke noted about Jesus' death were his final words. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. The last words 
that someone says when they're about to die can sometimes leave a lasting impression. I'm going to share with you some examples of a, a few dead people that you might have heard of. The final words of Kurt Cobain's suicide note said, it's better to burn out than to fade away. According to Steve Jobs', Steve Jobs sister, Mona, the Apple founder's last words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez whispered, I don't want to die. Please, don't let me die. And Anton LaVey, author of the Satanic Bible and high priest of the religion dedicated to the worship of Satan, his last dying words were, Oh my, oh my, what have I done? There's something very wrong. There is something very wrong. See, unlike these men, Jesus end, ended his earthly ministry the same way it began, by quoting scripture. Back in Luke chapter 4, we were told how it began when he opened up the scroll containing Isaiah 61. And after reading the first two verses, he closed it back up and told his audience, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Well, here now, Jesus' final words from the cross was a quote from Psalm 31.5. Those words expressed his faith, his relationship to God, and his insistence that death and the cross did not represent the last word. I don't know about you, but I hope that my last dying words, my last words I ever say, whether it's to an ambulance driver or a doctor or a surgeon or to one of my kids, my wife, to any of you, I hope and pray that my last words on this earth to come from the Word of God. See, death led only to paradise to protection in God's hands, to the kingdom. This here then solidifies what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment a believer dies, the moment someone that's trusted in Christ and has been born again, immediately they're in the presence of the Lord. And oh, what a sign. Nothing beautiful, wonderful in this world will ever, ever compare to that. So that's something you should look forward to. Is being automatically in the presence of the Lord when you last breaths here. So, here's a question. If death led Jesus safely into God's hands, 
Doesn't it do the same for all who trust in Jesus? By faith, the answer is yes. Absolutely. Though, although death is real for the Christian, death is nothing more than a barrier. Like the temple curtain, upon your death, that barrier is torn in two, allowing you to have immediate and permanent access to the Father. Immediate and permanent access. Well, now that his work on the cross has have been accomplished, our Lord Jesus felt no further need to keep enduring the suffering. So after saying those words, he yielded his living spirit to God the Father and breathed his last breath. Now, I want to remind you again that I am just covering what Luke said in his, in his account, in his gospel. But if you read the other gospels as well, you'll see that he also said, it is finished. And that's what happened. He completed it. He completed all and no more is needed to come to God. It is finished. Now, when he breathed his last breath, it shows us that God gave, that Jesus gave up his life when he wanted to and how he wanted to. No one took his life from him. He gave it up when his work was finished. Therefore, since Jesus voluntarily gave up his life, we need not see him as a victim. We should pity. Instead, we ought to admire him as a crucified conqueror who brought victory through humiliation. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, says that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where he sits now, interceding for you, mediating for you, watching out for you. He's defending you there. Oh, what a beautiful king. What a beautiful Savior we have. What a wonderful Jesus we have. He's doing that for us. Because he loves us. R.C. Sproul said this about our Lord's sacrifice. The sweetest fragrance, the most beautiful aroma that God has ever detected emanating from this planet was the aroma of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that was offered once and for all on the cross. All right, well, the third thing Luke noted about Jesus' death were the three responses of uh, to the events 
of Jesus' last moments of uh, Christ's death, of Jesus' death. Again, three responses. In verse 47, we're given the testimony of one of the centurions who was in charge of the execution. This man was righteous. This is significant because any centurion would have been a man of utmost integrity whose word was to be accepted as completely unbiased and true. He was, the centurion was also a Gentile. So his, toast, his testimony would have had a great weight, would have held great weight with Luke's audience. So if you were to take the criminal's testimony, that criminal that was hanging there with Jesus, that was forgiven, that was told he was going to be with Jesus in paradise, and the soldier's testimony, and juxtapose them and put them together, you'd see that both sides of the law, the legal side and the criminal side, concluded the same thing, that Jesus was innocent. And furthermore, his admission was more than just a declarative statement. It was a form of worship and praise that gave glory and honor to God. If you think about it, that's the proper response when someone comes to the cross and realizes the truth about who's hanging there and why. It should move you. It should overwhelm you. The thought of Jesus hanging there and being God's son and being there when the universe was created. The thought of him growing up as a, as a baby, as a child, running around and playing and laughing. And now he was there on the hands pierced with nails, his feet pierced, crown of thorn in his head, bloodied, gasping for air. God's son suffering for you, for your sins. Friends, First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 gives a good reason to glorify God. He himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins on his body on a tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Because of this verse that I just read and many others, I'll tell you what, it's, and knowing again that this was an actual person, this was actual, this really happened, it's honestly really hard for me to watch any kind of Jesus movie, whether it was a movie from the 70s or The Passion of Christ or, um, the current series is going. I, I, 
I would love to watch them, but I can't. I can't watch them. And the reason being because I start choking up when I start seeing like the compassion Jesus had for people. And then I, I know that I'm going to start bawling when those images of this actor, this, these, these, this actor playing Jesus being beaten, being crucified, and dying, it, I get overwhelmed at, the, at that thought. And so it's easier for me to read it. I still get overwhelmed, but to see images of it on, or maybe a realistic type of scene where that's happening, it, it's another thing. You see, although I know that it's just a movie, it does get overwhelming. I do get overwhelmed with emotion, knowing what my Savior, what Jesus endured on the cross. Again, those were act those are actors. I don't think that you know we will ever until we see Jesus and speak to him, I don't think we'll ever have a complete accurate picture of the suffering he endured. Well, the next response we see here at the end of this passage came from the crowds that came to see the spectacle. But the, what happened is that once Jesus died, they began to drift away one by one. Just like some of those protesters and riots you see in some of these cities, they there's a massive amount of people, but once they've had enough, once the police doesn't want to play their games anymore, or once they get tired of the the stun grenades and the CS gas and all that, they start drifting away one by one. Well, essentially, that's what happened. Once Jesus died, they had no reason to scream, or they had no reason to be there. But as they began to drift away, some of them began striking their chests as they felt their guilt. Now, were these people believers? Probably not. More than likely, they were just spectators who were attracted to the execution. But certainly they saw and heard enough that it convicted them of their own sins. Now perhaps for them, Jesus was just another instance of cruel Roman justice, which took the most notorious criminals and placarded them against the sky for all to see so that no one would imitate their heinous deeds. However, the irony was that he was also showing his followers what he expected of them. Take up the cross and follow him. They must lose their lives to save them, just as he was doing. 
The final response came from all who knew him, including the women who followed him from Galilee. Standing at a distance, they remained vigilant. They remained watchful in the most crucial scene in the history of the world. These women were named in, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, and Mark chapter 15, verse 40, stuck with him. They stayed with Jesus, even, as, even after all the male disciples had abandoned him. After they all fled, these women stuck by his side. They were the last at the cross and first at the tomb on Easter morning. They were there at Pentecost and were instrumental in helping the disciples spread the message of resurrection of hope all over the world. But until then, all they can do at that moment was to stand by and wait for the opportunity to serve Jesus just one more time. I was reading the story of a rail, railway switchman who testified that he swung his lantern at the crossing as an automobile sped toward the fast train. In spite of the warning, the car sped on and the driver was killed. The switchman was exonerated. He later confided to a friend that he had no light in his lantern. What an awful guilt would be upon me if I didn't give any of you fair warning of these three things. First, a man must die. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it, as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. You see, ladies and gentlemen, thousands die daily. And if our Lord and Savior tarries, all must die. Second, a man must meet God. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Both saint and sinner must stand before the judgment and face God. And each person will be judged. However, the difference being that the believer be saved. The believer will no longer have to worry about the an eternal punishment for all of eternity. They will be with the Lord. And that's for the born-again believer. But for the sinner, those who haven't Surrender those who haven't accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Sad truth is, is that there will be eternal suffering, agony in hell. 
And you can't say that it's not right or that it's not fair. God is, yes, a loving God, but he's also a just God. You can't have without true justice. So yes, those people will be judged simply for not accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Very easy. It's not that hard. Surrender your life to him today. You never know. This could be your last day. Now third, a man must be born again to see heaven. There's only one hope for heaven, and that's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I repeat that. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No other way to have that relationship with God the Father but through Him. Try to find it through drugs, through alcohol, through pornography, through, through gambling, through whatever other vices, through religion, through philosophies, through education, but that will never be enough. The only way is through Jesus. So let me break it down in the simplest forms, in the simplest terms that every child can understand. Christ died for you. He took your place upon the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. He offers salvation through his death on the cross. What must you do? Receive him as Savior. Truly I tell you, Jesus says in John chapter 6 verse 47, anyone who believes has eternal life. Again, quoting J.C. Ryle, he said this, If Christ had not gone to the cross and suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust, there would not have been a spark of hope for us. There, will, they, there would have been a mighty gulf between ourselves and God, which no man could ever have passed. So believe in him today. Trust in him today. When I'm done here, I will offer you an opportunity to do that by praying with you and to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do it today. Well, after Jesus had breathed his last and his life had left his body, it was now time for the burial. So let's read about that now by going back to chapter 23 in Luke and reading those last few verses there. 
There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan in action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut on the rock, cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And that's the end of chapter 23. The major idea that I hope stood out here in this last passage is that is that we have a savior that was that died and was buried in the same manner as all dead people so let's now break it down well out of nowhere luke inserts a new character into this narrative and introduces him as a good and righteous man this here was the only time Luke used the adjective good to describe a specific person. Back in chapter 6, verse 45, the Lord had said that a good person is a man whose heart stores up good things and activates them at the right moment. In chapter 8, verse 15, he also said that a good man preserves, perseveres in God's word. And in chapter 19, verse 17, he is trustworthy and uses his master's goods in a worthwhile way. Such high praise is unexpected for any man, but especially for this one. Why? Because Joseph of Arimathea wasn't just your average Job. He wasn't just your average unknown private individual. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. He was part of the court that condemned Jesus and took, took him to Pilate for the death penalty. In verse 51, Luke strikes down any assumptions that Sanhedrin were unanimous in its decision about Jesus. We now know that at least one man disagreed with the rest of the council's plan in action to take Jesus to Pilate for crucifixion. He was that one dissenting vote. It was like, no way. So why did Joseph vote against his fellow, mem his fellow council members? Because he had focused his life on God and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. When that's your focus, when that's what you have to look forward to, 
your voice will always be the dissenting voice among the majority of the crowd that is speaking, saying, that is thinking a totally, completely different way. That is, has their mind set on the world, that it has their minds set on doing evil, doing wrong. When God is your focus and entering his kingdom is your goal, your voice will always be that dissenting voice. See, Joseph was, was the kingdom at work in his actions, in the, in the actions of Jesus. He recognized that the one crucified as king of the Jews truly was the anointed, the anointed one, the king. Luke then tells us in verse 52 that Joseph risked his life and career when he went courageously, uh, when he approached Pilate, and ask for Jesus' body. The last time the Jews went to Pilate, they sought to kill Jesus. However, here, Joseph wanted to bury him. But see, because the Romans controlled the crucifixion, they also controlled the body and its disposal. Now, since Jesus had been charged with the capital crime of treason, the officials, the Roman officials who were in charge of, of that could have denied Joseph's request and disposed of the Lord's body any way they wanted, the same way they would deal with any criminals, especially treasonous criminals, in the worst kind of ways. However, since Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, it made the situation a lot more easier. You see, no one knew he was a secret follower of Jesus. All anybody knew was that he belonged to the group that demanded his death. Therefore, since the events at the cross seemed to have dispelled any fears of riots, and there wasn't anyone there that could object. None of the disciples were around to object to to who had or yeah, who had who could take Jesus' body. Pilate was like, Okay, sure. Go ahead, Joseph, take it. I don't know what you're gonna do, but take his body. Well, immediately afterwards, he followed the the common customs of the day by taking the body down and wrapping it in fine linen. He then placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock that had never been used. In Jewish society, this was important because it meant Jesus didn't share a tomb with, generation, with the generations of, of Joseph, Joseph's ancestors. It meant that Jesus' tomb had been hadn't been used previously and then emptied of its contents because a new generation needed, needed it. So he gave this precious possession to Jesus, not realizing how short the occupancy would be. 
Next, Luke informs us in verse 54 that it was the, it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. So Jesus' burial had to be done in a hurry. Especially, again, we were told that it was dark already by 3 p.m. Well, it was dark and the Sabbath would begin at official sundown. See, preparation day, the preparation day was designed to give each family enough time to prepare for worship, for clothing, for food, and to ensure that no work was done on the Sabbath. They, they had this time to prepare. But instead of preparing with his family, Joseph interrupted Sabbath preparations to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Oh, another reason for the rush was that the Sabbath, like as I mentioned, would begin at sundown. So that only gave them a, a few hours. This may have meant that there wasn't really enough time to do the full preparation. So the basic preparations could only be made and of anointing the body for preservation. But the last two verses, Luke once again focuses on the important role the women played during this time. Throughout his ministry, these faithful women followed Jesus and continued to do so even after the crucifixion. They had provided for him, they had provided for him in life, and now they prepared to provide for him in death. So they watched Joseph's activities. They observed him. They studied him carefully. They watched how he was doing things so that they would know exactly where Jesus was and what needed to be done to his body. They then returned to their homes, to their residence, and prepared spices and perfumes to honor the dead and to hide the odors connected with death and decay. And then finally the Sabbath came and they rested per the commandment. This had to be done so that, G so that Jesus and those most closely associated with him would not be charged and condemned for violating the Old Testament law. Now sure, they might not follow Pharisee and scribal interpretation but in no way would they allow anyone to accuse them, to accuse them of disobeying Scripture. Once again, it's important to remember that it wasn't the disciples, but women, who exemplified here Christ's call to take up the cross and follow Him. They followed to the cross and to the tomb. Now in this passage, I, there's a couple of things that we can learn. And I want to mention them real quickly. First, with Joseph of Arimathea, he stepped up and gave Jesus his, his tomb. Have you stepped up and given to Jesus? You may have something that he needs. That he wants. Have you given it to him?
again for his glory. And the other thing we can learn here is in times of darkness, in times of trouble, in times of despair, when things seem bleak and dark and hectic, and the men don't seem to be around, the women stepped up themselves and played a critical role in these in, during these three days after Jesus had died. So you women, again, don't let anyone tell you that you're not important because you are. I've seen my wife step up when I haven't been able to. I've seen some of you too, and I admire that. Again, it's important that that men do the leading, but there are times when there are no men to lead. So yeah, there are times that a woman has to do that. That's fine. You know, but again, just keep keep doing that. Keep working hard. Again, they prepared, they were vigilant, they prepared the spices, they they observed, they saw, they they didn't give up. They continued following Jesus, even when everyone had abandoned Jesus. So, here let me summarize what we've learned here, some of the things we learned here in this chapter. Jesus' disciples couldn't imagine things could turn out this way. The master, teacher, healer, an exerciser lay dead in a tomb. Jewish religious leaders finally had their way. Nothing seemed to be going their way. A Roman court proved him innocent, but pronounced him guilty. The one who had been the center of attention, the hero beyond all heroes, now found the same crowds calling for his death and mocking him. It wasn't fair, but no one promised it would be. It was, it, it was what God had planned for in the Old Testament. It was the only way for a perfect, innocent, sinless man to die for the sins of the world. Christ faced the choice, save himself or save the world. And he chose to save you. He chose to save us. So his choice now forces us to make choices. Will we acknowledge his innocence? Do you recognize that he came to seek and to save the lost? Will you accept salvation? Are you prepared to testify to the world that a man who died represents our only hope for life? If you're ready to do that, if you're ready to acknowledge him, if you're ready to receive him, to, to place your heart and to, to place your faith in him,
who are ready to be born again. I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. So wherever you may be, if you're in a safe place, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And if you're able to, you can also kneel if you want to, with all sincerity. But from the bottom of your heart, pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've fallen short of the glory of God and I've completely blown it. And I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. All the things that I've done. I now believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And I'll turn for my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. Now I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you're watching, listening, get a hold of us. Let us know you prayed that so we can hear, hear from you, maybe help you, lead you into your next steps of your new Christian life. Again, no obligation. You can even call me, write me anonymously. If you're in the local area, we invite you again to, to come check us out and see what we're doing here. Learn from the Bible. I'm not going to put on a show. I don't have lights or like I don't have um, smoke machines. I don't have fancy lights. I don't have a, a big worship band. All I offer you is the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I guarantee you that you'll learn more learning the Bible this way than what you may learn in some other churches here in the world. Again, thank you for watching and listening. I look forward to seeing you next week. But be blessed. Be safe. Stay healthy and farewell.